Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, all you animal people, and welcome to the Pet Place Radio Show. I'm Marie Hewitt, and I thank you for tuning in to our show on K-Mozart. A few weeks ago, I'm sure a lot of you tuned in to the AKC's National Championships. I always recommend that if you're interested in a particular breed of dog, that you watch a big show like this to learn a little bit more about your favorite breed's traits and then do a little follow-up research, reading online or at the library, to make sure it's a good fit for your lifestyle. I also encourage everyone to get their purebred dogs from rescues because, sadly, there are a lot of really terrible puppy mills out there, even some, unfortunately, that touch national championships. We've talked about puppy mills before, but it's an important topic, so I've invited Kathleen Summers, the Director of Outreach and Research for the Humane Society of the United States Puppy Mills Campaign, to talk about a recent court case and the current status of puppy mills in our country. And after our halftime break, for all you cat lovers out there, Dr. Adam Alistair has some really interesting information about the history of domestic kitties. So stay right where you are, and we'll begin after a very quick message from the station here on K-Mozart. Welcome back. You're listening to the Pet Place Radio Show on K-Mozart. I'm Marie Hewitt, and our first guest is ready and waiting to talk about puppy mills. I'd like to extend a huge welcome to Kathleen Summers from the Humane Society of the United States. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, how are you? I am doing really well, thank you. And I'm so glad you came to the show today to talk about puppy mills. You know, we've we've talked about puppy mills a lot on the Pet Place. It's a disturbing subject, and it seems like we're not making any headway on the problem. Well, we're making some progress in getting new laws passed. Um, in the last five or six years, we've passed about 30 different laws to crack down on puppy mills in, in numerous states across the country. But there's still a lot to be done as far as enforcement and increasing the accountability. Right. That's what I've heard, that enforcement is just almost impossible because there just aren't enforcement officers available. Right. And it, it going into quote-unquote raid a puppy mill can also be very expensive, so it's it's sort of a last resort for these small local communities that, that aren't well-funded and don't have a lot of resources. Oh, gosh. So how can we ever tackle this problem? Well, the most important thing is for consumers to stop buying puppy mill puppies. Um, it's easier said than done because very often they're, they're not knowing that they're doing so. Uh, for example, they are buying a puppy from a pet store after being told that the store only buys from reputable breeders, um, or they're buying online thinking that they're dealing with a reputable breeder um, and just not really knowing the level of deception that's out there. Oh, gosh. How can a consumer take steps to ensure they are not supporting a puppy mill? Well, first and foremost, of course, we recommend adoption from local animal shelters Absolutely. and breed rescue groups if, if you're looking for a specific breed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if 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 you ultimately decide to purchase a puppy from a breeder, there are responsible breeders. You just have to go and meet them in person, and a responsible breeder will be happy to show you the mother of the dog, where where the mother and and if she has the father, 
both parents are living, mm-hmm. um, and where where all of her dogs spend their time, not just the puppy that you're thinking of buying. Right. Uh, it's very important to see for yourself because you you can't rely on on claims that are made online or from pet store personnel. So best situation is you go to a home where you see that the dogs are house dogs, they're loved, they're part of the family, and they live in really nice conditions the way that dogs should live and not out in a cage. Absolutely, and a responsible breeder will be asking you questions about yourself and your home and what you have to offer to the dog, and that shows that she cares about where her puppies are going. That's right. If she just wants to know, you know, whether you have cash or check, then she probably isn't in it for the best interest of the dogs. Definitely. Well, that's excellent advice. And I was reading that the AKC had some sort of interaction with a big puppy mill breeder recently. Can you fill in our listeners on that? Yes. Unfortunately, a number of the puppy mills that we have raided lately have been AKC-linked. Um, the largest example of that recently was a puppy mill in Jefferson City, Montana, owned by a man named Mike Chalinski. He was an AKC champion breeder of Malamutes. Um, when we entered his property with local authorities in 2011, he had 161 Malamutes. AKC had inspected him and said that everything was fine. Um, what we found and what law enforcement found when we got there were dead dogs on the property, uh, dogs who were severely malnourished. Mm. Um, we found some dogs weighing half of what an adult Malamute should weigh. Yikes. Um, and, and, and this was somebody who was on the board of the AKC? No, he wasn't on the board, um, but he was considered a champion breeder. Oh, wow. uh, at least one of his dogs had appeared in the AKC Nationals um, just a few years back and um, was for a long time considered to be a, a reputable breeder. Unfortunately, even even a breeder who starts out well can get in over their head. So, uh, you know, because somebody had a good reputation three years ago doesn't mean you shouldn't go and see their facility for yourself before you think about buying from them. Where do you draw the line on what a reasonable amount of dogs is on any given property if somebody's a reputable breeder? I mean, that you know, sounds was, like a crazy amount of dogs. Right, right. And if you even have if you're on someone's property and you're asking yourself that question, that probably means they have too many dogs. Okay, okay. So a reputable breeder probably only has, you know, just a few dogs of their own that they they breed maybe a couple times a year at the most because exactly. it's very expensive to, to breed dogs, for one thing. So unless you're just doing it because you're passionate about the breed, you're not going to be making money off of it. So somebody who looks like their sole purpose is to make money is somebody who you should be seeing red flags with, right? That's right. Okay. Well, what can our listeners do, aside from, you know, making sure they go to a reputable breeder, which I think most of our listeners know, and they know to to go to rescues and shelters. We're very pro-rescue and shelter on this Mm -hmm. show. Um, But what if they want to get involved and, and help make a difference so that we can truly put an end to puppy mills? Well, um, what people can do is let their lawmakers know that they're concerned about puppy mills. Um, They can sign up for alerts at humanesociety.org. It costs nothing to sign up for email alerts. And once you put in your information in your state and zip code, you'll get alerts from us letting you know if there's a bill coming up in your area 
that you may want to write to your lawmakers about, um, if there's a hearing that you may want to attend. Um, that's, that's one of the most important things besides education is having the laws in place. Because without a law in place, you can have an animal control officer going out to a property that has five or 600 dogs in substandard conditions, but unless there's a really specific law saying you can't have hundreds of dogs on a small property or you can't have dogs in stacked wire cages, um, unless there's something specific in the law, sometimes there's nothing they can do. Wow. And I've heard that the AKC actually stands in the way of these laws becoming enacted. That That's probably the most unfortunate thing. Um, you know, it's not about purebred versus mixed breed or even breeders versus shelters. It's The issue is that the AKC claims to be the dog's champion, but it has opposed more than 90 different bills and ordinances over the past five or six years Why do you that think were specifically designed to protect dogs. Um, because they got a lot of pressure from the commercial breeding industry um, which threatened to take its business elsewhere. There are other registries. Um, and the AKC at some point made the decision that they wanted to keep their market share. Wow. So the AKC, it's, it's just a registry. For people who think that the AKC, if you have AKC papers, you know, your dog is special, what does it really mean if your dog has AKC pe- papers and you bought it from a pet store? Well, basically it means that the breeder sent in records to the AKC with information about the parents indicating that the parents, say, for example, you bought a Labrador, that both the mother and the father were registered Labradors. Um, Now, the AKC doesn't go out and really make sure that that's the actual parent of the puppy. Um, uh, You know, they occasionally do DNA tests for frequent sires. They have some good programs for that. Mm -hmm. But in general... You know, you, you could be sending in an AKC registration on a cat and very often not get caught. Wow. And so, um, you know, it's a registry for them to keep for for them to keep track of the parentage of the dogs, and a lot of it is on the honor system. Oh gosh. So it well, doesn't mean that. Yeah. You, I mean, you can register a dog who's who's blind and has three legs, um, and is an AKC dog as long as his or her parents were both AKC. So it has nothing to do with the health or whether or not it was bred under good and humane conditions. All it says is that the parents, and it may or may not even be true, were purebred. Right. Wow. And the AKC does nothing to disallow puppy mills from registering dogs. No, they do have an inspection program, but it's internal, and they don't publish or share the results of their inspections. Uh, And this breeder we just talked about, Mike Chilinski with the Malamutes, was one of the breeders that they allegedly inspected. Uh, So, you know, they have this, this system, but there's no transparency, and they don't have the ability to enforce any laws. So when, when they go to oppose a bill, they very often will say, we don't need statewide inspections in, say, New York or whatever the state is, because AKC has its own internal inspections program. Uh, But the AKC only inspects a tiny percentage of the breeders in this country. And Mm. even if their inspections were at all effective, what about all the other puppy mills that are are never inspected? Wow. If they did come across a breeder who was substandard, out of compliance, what do they do? I don't know. They do claim that they sometimes report them to the authorities. 
Um, Do they suspend that breeder's ability to register dogs? We haven't seen that. We have seen them occasionally suspend breeders after authorities have gone in and successfully charged them with animal cruelty. Wow. Um, But we're not, what we need to do is prevent the cruelty. It's not enough to charge in after the fact and try to rescue dogs that are suffering. If Mm -hmm. we have good inspections programs in place and licensing programs for large-scale breeders, we can stop these animals from suffering in the first place. Absolutely. And that's what AKC needs to take a part in. Do you think eventually they're going to come around with all this public uh, awareness now about puppy mills? I mean, it seems like it would be in their best interest to get on board. We have reached out to them um, on numerous occasions, and they have not been open to working on any compromises. Well, that's disappointing. Yes. (laughs) And that's putting it mildly. Yes, because we would be glad to sit down with anyone, really, in in the pet industry who's interested in improving conditions for dogs and talk about ways that our interests overlap and and ways that we can agree on ensuring the humane treatment of dogs. But they apparently don't want to be part of that discussion right now. Oh, boy. Well, Kathleen, I suspect that the Humane Society has a lot of information about puppy mills and how listeners can get involved on their website. Can you give your website out before I let you go? Sure. It's humanesociety.org slash puppy mills. Excellent. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking some time with us today. Okay, thanks for having me. We need to take a very quick break now, but when we return, Adam Alistair will be stopping by to give us a history lesson on cats. So stay right where you are, and we'll be right back with more of The Pet Place on K-Mozart. We're back on the Pet Place Radio Show, and I'd like to welcome Adam Alistair to the program. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. Before we start talking about cats, which is our big subject today, and it also happens to be my favorite topic, let me ask you about your Ph.D. What's your specialty? Uh, My scholarly specialty is actually slave rebellions uh, in the Roman world. My goodness. Yeah, so it's quite a bit different than what I'm supposed to be doing. (laughs) So from that, we're talking about cats. And I understand you were out researching some ruins in Sicily for your educational uh, endeavors, and somehow you got sidetracked. What happened? Well, uh, sort of wandering around Sicily and and southern Italy, uh, looking at things and landscapes, and I I found myself sort of as interested in the feral cats that were everywhere as I was in the things that I was supposed to be paying attention to. Uh Uh-huh. There are a lot of cats wandering around. I've seen that myself. Yes, and and I... uh, Often, sort of, the people seem indifferent to them, uh, and it it made me, I don't know, contemplate, you know, the, the the place of cats in our society and the things that they've done for us, you know, for for millennia, basically. Wow. So these guys, they're they're not real healthy, are they? No, not particularly. Uh, Probably not very well fed either. No. So I, I heard that you started carrying around a five pound bag of cat food. <laughs> I, I did. I I don't know if that's sounds silly or not, you know, and it's not going to help them in the long term, but I I uh, was at a bus stop, I think, uh, uh, in uh, eastern Sicily, and 
I noticed there was this little female cat that was sort of beat up and sickly looking, and I, I had a wait, so I went back and bought cat food for her, and then that sort of started the whole process where I kept seeing more feral cats, and I'd stop to feed them and, and so on. Wow, did the local people all look at you like you were crazy? A little bit. I, I did eventually run in, in Rome. I ran into a, an old, a sort of older woman uh, who was a sort of cat fairy, apparently. She was, she was feeding all the local cats, and they looked pretty well fed, so... It's not everyone that, that totally ignores them. There are a lot of people who just consider them all street cats, kind of belonging to the community, and I know some people will just put food out for them and leftovers, and, and that's kind of how people take care of the cats out there. It seems to be pasta in Italy. <laughs> I'm not sure how they feel about that. but <laughs> Oh, boy, cats eating pasta. Well, somehow this inspired you to start looking into the history of cats. How did that happen? Um, I think part of it was uh, I was in the throes of writing a doctoral dissertation at the time, and and often academic stuff is less than enjoyable to write. And I, I realized I hadn't written anything in a long time that I really enjoyed writing, and so I just started writing this, this uh, essay about cats, and that got sort of longer and longer and and I just kept going with it, and I realized it was really, you know, fun to write. So I kept going, and it turned into a book, ultimately. Wow, that's very cool. And you're talking mostly in your book about how cats have contributed to society throughout yeah. history. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, uh, I think that's that's a response to maybe a minority of people. I think some of them tend to be dog people, but they... There's a, a, a at least a, a small vocal group of individuals who seem to think that cats are sort of parasitical or lazy, or that you know they don't really contribute to human society, and and uh, that ignores thousands of years of of cats being really valuable animals, uh, and, and in a variety of different times and places, the Egyptians saw them as uh, guardians uh, of a, of a sort. The cats are you know helping protect you from dangerous snakes, and they. They uh, protect your food supply from rats and mice and things like this. And uh, most cultures, I suppose, uh, for centuries and centuries have recognized that even in, even in areas where uh, cats intermittently would be persecuted, like, like in medieval Europe. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't understand why they would have been persecuted. Didn't they sort of save Europe from the plague? It's, it's one idea of it. It, it has to do with... Um, I think a combination of folk superstition and, and uh, Christian misapprehension that cats tend to be associated by some individuals with the devil or with evil spirits, something like that. How uh, did that all come to pass? What what made people think these cute little innocent creatures were possessed by the devil? Demons, yes. Yeah. Well, I think I think one of it, uh, one aspect of it, might be that they're. The, the way that uh, cats' uh, eyes glow in the dark, mm-hmm. um, it, that they seem associated with the night. I think medieval Christianity had a, a tendency to see evil spirits in dark places, and so cats were associated with darkness and seemed at home in it. Uh, and from that, I, I think, at least sometimes in places, cats are considered to be the familiars of witches or maybe witches themselves in, in the form of a cat. Um, and so you... You have this intermittent distrust of them, hmm. uh, not just in Europe, other places as well. Okay. Uh, 
Well, what about black cats? You know how everybody says a black cat is unlucky, especially on Friday the 13th. Did you look into that at all? I, I actually did, yes. Um, that's fairly common throughout throughout most of the world, it seems like, this idea that black cats are somehow uh, maybe not always evil, but uh, something that brings bad luck. Uh, I think both India and Russia uh, would would have that tradition. Uh, I think in Russia you're supposed to, if a black cat crosses your path, uh, what you're supposed to do is wait until some other pedestrian crosses where the cat crossed, and then they get the bad luck and not you. Okay. You know? <laughs> uh, it's wow. simi- similarly in, in India, yeah. It, it, and I, it's, it's odd that that carries on to today. I understand that black cats are you know, less likely to be adopted, I think, That is very true. I do a lot of work at uh, animal shelters, and it is amazing how many black cats they always have on hand and cannot adopt out, no matter how friendly and beautiful these cats are, which makes no sense whatsoever. No. In modern times, how can people hang on to such crazy beliefs? The power of superstition, perhaps. I I don't know. It's just incredible. And how many cats do you have yourself? Uh, I I have three um, at the moment. I I think it's always sort of a struggle to maintain it at that. I would have more if I had more space. Mm -hmm. Um, I have two shelter cats that I adopted. And and I have uh, another cat that just uh, showed up one day as a tiny starving kitten under my floorboard. (laughs) Under your floorboards? Yeah, I I have no idea how she got there, but she's not tiny or starving anymore. She looks like a basketball, kind of, with all of her fur. (laughs) And did did any of these three make it into your book? Uh, Actually, they did. I I think it's kind of self-indulgent, but the the last chapter of it is a a history of my own cats. Um, So I sort of of wrote um, about all of the cats that I've known, through my life, mm-hmm. I, I got my first cat when I was eight, uh, mm. and he was my best friend. Yeah. And so, I took the opportunity to, to talk about that and talk about some of the things that I've learned from them. Well, what are some of the tips that you would give to prospective cat owners to be successful cat owners? To be successful cat owners, uh, well, one of the things that, that I learned uh, with my last edition is that you, depending on the personality of the cat, perhaps it really pays to be very cautious about how you. You first associate them. Uh, I am guilty of putting them together too early, and so I think that's caused this sort of long-term animosity where oh, my okay. female cat dislikes the male and won't share the back of the couch and, you know, that that type of stuff. So what would you recommend people do differently? I've, uh, I've had uh, acquaintances have good luck with sort of quarantining the new cat until the, the original one gets used to the scent uh, of the one that you just uh, purchased so that they gradually sort of slowly get used to each other. That makes sense. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, perhaps my two cats are just not particularly compatible. I, 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 I don't know. I think one would be friends with the other, but the, my female is jealous of her privileges. <laughs> <laughs> so they kind of tolerate each other for the most part. I mean, you don't have horrible cat fights 24-7. Oh, no, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. They... They get along. I I think that there's there's an occasional someone gets slapped, you know, but <laughs> but you know there's there's nothing more than that. You know. 
Okay, let me ask you this about your book. I know sometimes when people write history books, especially academic history books on cats, even though it's a delightful subject, they tend to be a bit dry. How would you categorize or describe the book you wrote? Um, I wrote this on purpose to be as readable as possible, um, in part because I think history is is partially meant to be entertainment, and it's supposed to be fun to read, and if you ruin it by making it too too uh, obtuse, then it, it it just takes away from what you're doing. And so I, I meant the book to be uh, readable to everybody, uh, and, and as much as I can make it hopefully fun to read, uh, so that you would you might read this as entertainment uh, and and learn something as well. It's definitely not a, a scholarly book meant meant for uh, uh, fellow academics. Uh, they, they already have their own specialized cat books that are very <laughs> specific. You know. Okay. Well, if somebody was interested in finding your book and reading it, where is it available? Uh, right now, it is available uh, in in print uh, and in uh, Kindle. Uh, through Amazon.com, uh, and I'm I'm hoping to get it into to bookstores uh, soon. Okay, and do you have your own website that sort of highlights some of the specialty areas of the the book? Uh, I, as of yet, I don't have a website, but you can look for me on um, Twitter and and uh, Google Plus and Facebook. Oh, okay. What would they look up? Uh, if you searched Adam Alasdare, uh my last name A L A S. D-A-I-R, you're going to find me. It's a, it's a rare name. Okay. Well, your book sounds fascinating, and I hope a lot of people will check out your your Facebook and your Twitter and look for you on Amazon because it's, it's just a fun, fun topic, and thank you for sharing with us today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. We need to take one last break now, but don't go away. We'll be right back with Pet Place News and Events here on K-Mozart. We're back on the Pet Place Radio Show. I'm Marie Hewlett, and it's time for Pet Place News and Events. I've mentioned this a few times on the program, but the day has finally arrived. Head on down to Cook La Novia Park in San Juan Capistrano with your kids, ages 5 to 12 years old, and their pets, and enter them in the annual Kids Pet Parade. As usual, there are a variety of categories to enter, such as cutest, most unusual, best costume, funniest, and most obedient. Registration begins at 11.30 a.m., so you have plenty of time to get there, and the parade starts promptly at 1 p.m. It's only $3, and it is a lot of fun. For more info, visit www.swallowsparade.com. And don't forget to check out our website at www.petplace.org to send us your comments or suggestions for the show and see what other fun animal-related activities there are on the Pet Place calendar. Well, that's all for me today. Remember, pets need love and a home, too. We'll be back next weekend with more of the Pet Place here on K-Mozart. I'm Marie Hewlett. Please stay or new to your pets and have a wonderful day. 